we're in Romans chapter 2, and I think, uh, Lord willing, we'll get through the first 11 verses today, uh, depending on the time, make it down a little sooner, but uh, I want to go through the first 11 verses. Uh, so would someone like to read, Samuel, would you like to read the first 11 verses? Thanks for volunteering. Yes, 1 through 11. Thank you, Samuel. So as, as we see here in the beginning of verse 1 of, of chapter 2, we need to pay attention to the very first word, which is therefore, which is a, a conjunction. Yes, I'm capable of using complex English language. It is a conjunction. Basically, it's, it's a connecting word. The Apostle Paul is saying, therefore, look what I just said to see what I'm going to say here. And not to rehash chapter 1, because my uncle did a very sufficient job of going over it, but I think we need to clarify and understand what the Apostle Paul is looking back to in this uh, portion of the text. So chapter 1 is an illustration, really, from verses 16 to the end of the chapter of the magnificent revelation of the triune God that he gave to mankind so that all of his invisible attributes are clearly seen. And really what the end of chapter 1 is, is the Apostle Paul, through the Holy Spirit, is indicting the natural world, really the Gentile world, outside of the Jews, as we'll see here in a second. But really, the natural world is indicting them for their not seeing God through nature. You know, as we established last week, my uncle, you know, general revelation and specific revelation, the very fact that we're here right now, standing as we are, that we have thoughts, that we have love, that we have conversations with one another, that we're breathing, is evidence and proof of the existence of God. And as Paul goes through these last verses of chapter 1, he's saying that it's clearly seen, clearly established that God exists, but the hardness of man's heart, you know, them taking and corrupting the image and and worshiping, you know, an image instead of God is proof of the hardness of their heart and not seeing that really the triune God does exist. So Paul is saying, therefore, establishing evidence at the end of chapter 1 And we need to keep this in mind as we're reading through chapter 2, specifically the first 16 verses. We need to keep what the Apostle Paul said in mind as we're going through uh, this 
particular portion of chapter 2. So, chapter 1 is the natural man. Really think of it here, chapter 1 is the Gentile world. So, those outside of the, of the nation of Israel were really not privileged to the specific divine revelation of God. Now, there were some Gentiles, obviously, in the Old Testament. You know, Rahab and, and uh, Ruth, she was a, a Moabitess. Rahab was in Jericho. So there was definitely Gentiles who were privileged to see God and to be saved in the Old Testament. But the vast majority of revelation in the Old Testament was, of course, through the nation of Israel, through the prophets, as God revealed himself to the nation of Israel. But the Apostle Paul is indicting the Gentile world in chapter 1 of their ignorance, of the hardening of their heart. And beginning here in chapter 2... Verse 1, therefore you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For whenever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same thing. So, the Apostle Paul here now moves on, as we'll see here in verse 17, uh, going on uh, later in the chapter, that the Apostle Paul now is addressing the Jews, specifically but also the moralist Gentiles. So those Gentiles who thought that what they were doing, their works were good. And specifically, what he's going to point out in this chapter is that the Jews are hypocrites. The moralist Gentiles are hypocrites. If they're judging the natural world, the Gentile world, for their sin, you know, for their unrighteousness, but then in the same instance, they're practicing the same thing. So the first three verses... Um, particularly, there's one word I really think that stands out. And this isn't a trick question, but is there a word that's repeated more than, you know, a couple times in the first three verses? Not rhetorical. Judge, yes. Judge and judgment. And the Apostle Paul uses uh, uses this word throughout the first three verses really to condemn those people that he's writing to. Judge. You who practice the same thing as you're condemning, as, as you're judging. So, uh, Joseph Benson, in his commentaries, he had this short little quote, which I thought was very helpful in understanding this particular uh, portion. He says, The apostle, having shown that the Gentiles could not entertain the least hope of salvation, according to the tenor of the law of nature, which they violated, proceeds next to consider whether the law of Moses gave the Jews any better hope an inquiry which he manages with great address. So, the Apostle Paul addresses the Gentiles. Now he is addressing the Jews who condemn the Gentiles for their unbelief, rightly so. It's not, the Apostle Paul is not saying here that you can't judge another for what they're doing, because what the Jews were judging the natural world for was correct, but they were still unbelieving. He's addressing their unbelief here. Yes, you know, they have the law of Moses, but... Their faith and trust is in the law of Moses and and doing those things. So uh, verse 2, But we know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same, that you will escape the judgment of God? So as we already established, the key word here in the first couple of verses is the word to judge. In the first three verses, uh, there's really two different types of Greek word that's used uh, for this word judge. Judge, and then obviously the other word judgment. Slight differential between the two of them, but we won't go in depth. But just here to establish that word judgment. 
here Paul is again addressing those who seemingly agree that the wicked, uh, what the wicked world, the wicked Gentile world have done, uh, described by Paul in chapter 1, and denying the existence of God. That in and of itself is wicked. So the Apostle Paul is not condemning them, you know, for condemning the Gentiles and seeing what the Gentiles are doing is wrong. So let's look here real quick at some of the attributes of these individuals Paul is addressing here. So these are the things that the Apostle Paul is agreeing with the Jews. He's not condemning them for these things. The Jews here obviously affirm the existence of God. As the Gentiles, the natural world, clearly blow off the existence of God in chapter 1. The Jews at least agree that God exists. The Jews here, those who the Apostle Paul is writing to, have rightly spotted the wicked in who they are in chapter 1. They understand that the wicked sin before a holy God. And also, even credit to the Jews here in chapter 2, in order to judge, you have to have some understanding or semblance of what is right or wrong. So the Apostle Paul is not necessarily condemning them for these things, for pointing out what is wrong in the Gentile world. You know, obviously the Jews had the law. They had had the revelation. They had had the Old Testament. So they were able to see that God exists. And they were able to point out that the Gentile world, that they are denying the existence of God. So, according to the Apostle Paul, through these first verses, these first three verses... Through the Holy Spirit, obviously, what then are the Jews missing? What are they missing here? Their ability to judge themselves as also guilty of breaking the law of God and their refusal to turn from their sin. So almost like in a self-righteous manner, they're correctly pointing out the sin of the natural world, of the Gentiles. But then they are incapable of looking at themselves and saying, yes, we have the law, but we are equally sinners as the Gentile world. You see, what, you see what's transpiring here? Is that it is kind of a, a hypocritical stance where they are correctly pointing out the sin, but they can't look at themselves. And as we continue on in Romans, the Apostle Paul is continuously going to address this through the works of the law uh, of chapter 3, and then he comes to the conclusion here in chapter 3 that all the world is under the condemnation of sin. So Paul starts with the Gentiles, and he goes to the Jews and the moralist Gentiles. And it's kind of like a snowball effect the Apostle Paul is building up here in chapter 2. And then in chapter 3 is going to come the accumulation, as I think the wonderful verses we can all agree on in, in Romans uh, chapter 3, 10 to 19, where the Apostle Paul says there's none righteous. No, not one. Yes, Becky. Yes. And, you know, when I say, like, Jews, this is, the, you know, the vast majority of Jews. There was obviously believing Jews in the early church. In fact, that's where all, the apostles were all Jews. They had believed, you know, that Jesus Christ was the Christ. But these specific Jews that the Apostle Paul is addressing, as we'll even see here at the end of chapter 2, you know, they're thinking that their circumcision is going to save them. But it's not the circumcision, the outward circumcision. It's the circumcision of the heart. That's what the key is, and that's what the Apostle Paul is addressing here. The issue with these Jews is they're condemning others, but they themselves are condemned because they are putting their faith and trust in their works. Uh, chapter, th- uh, 
Charles Ellicott said, the Jews, it seems, had an idea that the Gentiles only would be judged, while they would be able to claim admission into the Messianic kingdom as theirs by right of birth. And we see this perpetually in the Gospels, when Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders. Really, the condescension, you know, even the story of the Good Samaritan, you know, the Jew passed, uh, the, the priest passed the Samaritan, you know, because they were Gentiles, they were basically dogs. You know, they were looked down upon. But I think what John the Baptist says in Matthew 3, 9 really illustrates the, the specific character and nature of this Jew-Gentile relationship. And he says to those Pharisees and the other Jews, And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, We have Abraham for our father. For I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. So they were putting all of their faith and trust in the law and their keeping of the law and their heritage that, yes, you know, we're, we're sons of Abraham and that's what's going to save them. But as we'll clearly see as we go throughout the rest of Romans, that that's not salvation. For by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. It's the knowledge of sin. So Paul is pointing out to the Jews here that your knowledge of the law should be convicting yourself of your sin. It should be convicting yourself of your need for Christ. In verse 4, he says, Or do you despise the riches of his goodness? Do you despise the riches of his goodness? Uh, Albert Bonds in his commentary, specifically with this word despise, says here, It does not mean here that they professedly treated God's goodness with neglect or contempt, but that they perverted and abused it. They did not make a proper use of it, They did not regard it as suited to lead them to repentance. But they derived a practical impression that because God had not come forth in judgment and cut them off, but had continued to follow them with blessings, that therefore that he did not regard them as sinners. Or they inferred that they were innocent and safe. Kind of see from this, this pedestal that, you know, the moralist Gentiles and even Jews are looking down upon. And as I stand here today and talk... It's easier for us to look at other people and point out, you know, their negative side. It's easy to point out their sin and, and what's wrong. But really, what it all starts with is taking a look at ourselves. And obviously, that's what I need to do on a daily basis. That's what we all need to do on a daily basis. That's what the Jews here need to do on a daily basis. They need to understand. They need to see that their keeping of the law is completely in a, uh, insufficient. You know, their heritage with Abraham is completely insufficient to save them from their unrighteousness. Despise. They despise the riches of his goodness. Uh, Here, this word riches too, this is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words that he uses in his epistles. In fact, this word riches here, he uses over 15 times in Romans and Corinthians and Colossians and Timothy and a few other spots. This word riches. Uh, Philippians 4.19, And my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. So you see here that these, group, these people that the Apostle Paul is, is addressing are despising the riches of the goodness of God through Jesus Christ. Why do they despise it? Because they think that what they are doing in and of themselves is leading to righteousness. Now, as we'll see, the only way that leads to righteousness is through Jesus Christ, which they are completely rejecting here at this point. The riches of his goodness. This is another word, goodness. This is 
equivalent with God. God is good. At all points, at all time, every single moment, God is good. And as we'll see later on in Romans 8, 28, one of the greatest verses in all the Bible, in my opinion, that God works all things together for good. God is a good God. And these people here are despising the goodness, the riches, and the goodness of God. I even think I was trying to go through some Old Testament examples. Is I hear, I hear quite a bit, and I think sometimes as Christians, we can also hear from dejectors or, or uh, really haters of Christianity that, oh, you know, the God of the Old Testament is nowhere near the God of the New Testament. Oh, the God of the Old Testament was wrath and destruction and judgment and killing and mass murder. But if you really look at it, the goodness of God starts in the Garden of Eden. When Adam and Eve took the bite of the apple, God should have cut them down right then and there for their sin and should have completely destroyed them and cast them in the pits of hell forever and ever. But the goodness and the mercy of God was established right there for man to see that God is a God of mercy. He's a God of goodness and that he put them out of the Garden of Eden and had established this plan for Jesus Christ to come and to save the people. Sodom and Gomorrah. You remember Abraham bargained with God, saying if, if there's 50 righteous people, all the way down to 10 righteous people. And God, seemingly, as it looks in the text, negotiates with him because he wasn't looking to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. He's not some sadistic God who enjoys the destruction of the wicked. No, the goodness of God here is to lead us to repentance. And then we see goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering. As we'll see in uh, Romans 3.25, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. God is a long-suffering God. He is a good God. He is long-bearing with us, with our iniquity. And that's what the Apostle Paul is saying here to these individuals, to this group of people he's talking to. By your condemnation and self-righteousness, you are despising all of the good characteristics and the qualities of God that lead you to repentance. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think uh, to that uh, important point right there, as he talks about circumcision later, I mean, even the, uh, the Apostle Peter, when Paul was writing the letter to the Galatians, you know, he gave the example when he had to go to Peter to his face because Peter was not eating with the Gentiles. He was, you know, basically eating with the Jews and saying that you had to be circumcised to become believers. So, yes, I, I think to your point right there that there was probably believers and non-believers in the church that the Apostle Paul was talking to, them, that there were issues of, you know, faith plus this, or you're judging this but not looking at yourself. Would you agree? Oh, sure. Yes. I, I think it's very easy for us to look down at other people, but we're guilty of the same exact stuff. Yeah, that.
Yeah. The goodness of God. Yes, Becky. Exactly. Yeah, very good. Anything else before we continue on? So as uh, we transition here, that's a careful word you have to say nowadays. As we transition here from verse 4 to verse 5, uh, the end of verse 4, not knowing that the goodness of God leads you to repentance. So we again see this theme established in the early part of this chapter, the goodness of God. God wanting people to come to him. I think we have to be careful when we say, you know, God wanting people to come to him. You know, I think as uh, Ezekiel said, God does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. But I think sometimes we can go too far in saying, well, yes, God wants every person to be saved. Well, that is true. But I think a lot of times people get in their mind like this callous thing that God's not able to save them. No, that, that's not it at all. But God is wanting these people to come to repentance and faith in him and stop relying upon themselves. As, uh, as Barnes mentioned earlier, that quote I had, the Jews thought that since blessing had come upon them and not judgment, they were fine and needed not to repent from their sin. So even these people in Rome or wherever else this letter was circulated later on, you know, these people, these Jews especially thought that since judgment had not come upon them, really in a great sense, uh, that they still had continued blessing, that they were fine with God, that they were at peace with God. But that's clearly not what we're going to be seeing here. In uh, verse 5 and 6 specifically, the Apostle Paul addresses that. So, let me go ahead and read verse 5. But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent heart, you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds. These are two of the verses, some of the, two of the verses in the Bible, some of the clearest picture of what is to come. Wrath in the day of wrath. And... What's interesting here, too, is the Apostle Paul is not talking even about the Gentile world as he was in chapter 1. Yes, wrath in the day of wrath for them, but these Jews who he's addressing to are seemingly good people on the outside. As Jesus said in Matthew 24, they're whitewashed tombs. On the outside is all clean, but on the inside is dead. So this is a warning to us, too. I have my notes, and I failed to mention it, but, you know... We like to look down at the Jews for not believing, but there are many people here in this church that are orthodox. They have all the orthodoxy. They have all the right doctrine, but it's quite possible that their faith and trust in Jesus Christ is completely nominal. It's not true. It's just an outward saying. And what your reward is at, at, the, end, at the end of time is wrath in the day of wrath. You're in the same position that, of these people that the Apostle Paul is addressing here. So as we're reading through this, we need to look at ourselves is our faith and trust in Jesus. Are we heaping up wrath in the day of wrath upon ourselves for what we have done? And he uses this language here, hardness in your impenitent heart. Uh, the NIV, they have stubbornness 
and unrepentant. That uh, word impenitent really means unrepenting. Impenitent. You are hardening your heart. You are not turning away from your sin and turning to the truth. In the context of this passage, this is referring to the Jews and also any unbeliever who thinks that they're orthodox. Um, Jews who remain unbelieving, but is also applicable to any person lost without Jesus Christ. The more you sin, the greater your punishment. And really, I think this verse could really uh, diverge into the, the greater doctrine of hell and, and uh, the orthodox belief of hell and, you know, that there's different punishments for people in hell. Because, yes, all sin is the same. But you will continue, as the Apostle Paul says, heaping up wrath in the day of wrath. You know, the more you sin, the greater wrath that is, that is heaped up upon you in hell. Uh, as R. C., I listened to a uh, sermon by R.C. Sproul this week, really on these two verses, you know, and he, he kind of, I'll paraphrase here, you know, the, the lightest level of hell is still unimaginable. There's different degrees of punishment to those in hell. And I think it goes back really to, um, to chapter 1, is that God does not punish anyone for something that they did not know. Yes, the natural world is punished for not knowing God, but if someone did not hear about Jesus Christ, they're not punished for not knowing Jesus Christ. They're punished for not knowing God. Does that make sense? Any disagreement with that? I said, in chapter 1, the Apostle Paul is condemning the natural world for, their, uh, for not believing God. So they'll be punished for that. But if, you know, some Native American did not hear Jesus Christ or hear the name of Jesus Christ, they're not going to be punished for that in hell, but they'll be punished for their unbelief of not seeing God revealed in nature. Does that make sense? Yes. Correct. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with That is correct, but the reason that they are going to hell is because they did not believe Christ. Correct? Maybe I'm getting a little too deep into the weeds for this discussion, but... Correct. Yes. And they'll be judged for that according to Romans chapter 1. They'll be judged for taking the image of the invisible God and, and corrupting it. Made in the image of a four-footed animal, basically. Dad, did you have something? <laughs> I mean, I, what, I'm, what I'm discussing here, I, I completely think is orthodox. I don't, I don't think there's any... There's, any it, there's difficulty, certainly, but... There's no heresy. There's no. There's no blasphemy. It's clear. You're not going to be. You're not going to be responsible for something that you did not hear or that you did not know of. But every man stands condemned before God for not believing God. So, let me go ahead and continue on. Let me get out of this. So, uh, people who make their. Uh, this is just kind of a thought I had. People who make their boast that they're going to hell make it seem that they are going to hell. Period. I think we've all heard people say that. I'm going to hell. I think you're insane. You're nutty. You're loony. You need to get checked out. 
but you're not just going to go to hell, period. Every day that you live, every day that you harden your heart, as these people here do, they're heaping up wrath in the day of wrath for the day of judgment. Uh, John, uh, verse 6, who will render to each one according to uh, to his deeds. John Gill said, in other words, God will render to evil men according to the true desert of their evil deeds. And of his own free grace will render to good men whom he has made so by his grace. What is suitable and agreeable to those good works. Which is, by the assistance of his grace, they have been able to perform. And that was actually intended for verse 7. But let me go ahead and read this here real quick. Um, This is from the New Geneva Study Bible. This is um, their commentary here on this verses 6 to 10. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, judgment is according to works. So that the judgment of these individuals and all the unrepentant, all the hardened of heart, will be judged according to their works. As we'll see here, God will render to each one according to his deeds. And I think that's refreshing for us, kind of a side note. In a world that we see so much corruption, we see so much injustice going on, we can take assurance that the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And he will repay every single person according to their deeds. You know, I've always kind of wondered with the, you know, really the atheist or even the, nat- the natural person that doesn't believe in God. Everyone knows that there's injustice around the world. Everyone knows that there are evil deeds. But yet we can take assurance to know that God will sort everything out at the end of times. But how unsatisfying, how unsatisfactory if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't know God, that injustice is going to continue to prevail. It's never going to be sorted out. People's bad deeds are never going to be known. That has to be just make your heart throb to know that there's injustice. But what we know here is that God will render to each one according to his deeds. And continuing on, eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. So verse 7 Let me read this again. Paul teaches that while salvation is by grace, judgment is according to works. So we kind of have this little island here in this text of judgment. Verse 7, the Apostle Paul is reminding the believing Jews and other believers that eternal life to those who by patient continuance and doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. You will persevere. You will continue to the end. Why? Because you have the Holy Spirit. And that was that quote by John Gill, is that, What is required to get into heaven? It is good works. It's perfect works. But let me continue on here. It's not our good works, and it's not our perfect works. The first covenant God made with Adam and Eve in the garden, the covenant of works. If you want eternal life, if you want everlasting life, you have to work. You have to to work and continue on. But you are judged by your works. When we get to heaven, or when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ... What's magnificent to know is that when God looks at us, when Jesus Christ looks at us, he's not going to see our works. He's not going to see our natural works. He's going to see his perfect fulfillment of the law in our account. Yes, Becky. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Yes. 
Exactly. And I think even a little deeper here, too, is, um, you know, meritorious works, people thinking that they can work their way to heaven. But as a believer, you have to have necessary works. You have to have fruit. As Jesus says, you will know a tree by its fruit. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you will have good works, but they contribute nothing to your salvation. You get no closer to heaven because of your good works. It's all the works of Christ. And I think that's a reminder here uh, to the Roman church and to those of us that we will continue to the end because we have the Holy Spirit and we will continue to produce good works. Tom, did you have something? Okay. You rescind your question. Or are you stretching? Oh, okay. <laughs> All right, verse 8 here. But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation and wrath, tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. And this is an important, at the end of verse 9 here, the Jew first and also of the Greek. If you notice that, that first started in verse 16 of chapter 1 where it says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, and also for the Greek, or for the Gentile. So righteousness, salvation in Jesus Christ, is for the Jew first, but also for the Greek, for the Gentile. But what does the Apostle Paul say here? On the other side of the coin, uh, on the other side of the coin, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first, and also of the Gentile. Every man will stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. Let me go ahead and read this uh, verses in Second uh, Thessalo- uh, Thessalonians. I never say that word right on the first try, especially when I'm up here. It's always a tongue twister. But Second Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul is addressing the Thessalonians. He says here in verse 8 to 10, In flaming fire taking vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among all those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. Just more assurance that those who are unrepentant, building up wrath in the day of wrath, indignation, wrath, tribulation, and anguish, unimaginable from the hand of a holy God, from the hand of a just God who judges all things. Verse 10, but glory, honor, and peace to everyone who works what is good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So again, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For all of mankind, it is open. That Jesus Christ is open to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And uh, as I finish here, um, let me go ahead and read, for there is no partiality with God. So as, as the Apostle Paul established in the first couple of verses that, you know, the Jews relying on your law and relying on your works, thinking that you're going to be saved because of what you've done, because of who you are. He's just establishing here again, bringing you home, for there is no partiality with God. doesn't matter what your background is, your rank, place, or status. It is irrelevant when it comes to standing before God. Background, ethnicity, wealth are nothing at the last day. You ever think to yourself, See, all these powerful people around the world, you know, President Biden or President Trump or President Xi or or Putin, all of these seemingly powerful people around the world, and most of the time they're older individuals, but you think to yourself, these positions of power in this world, you know, you have prestige and honor, but when you take your last breath, you're going to stand before God. And there's going to be no boasting. You're not going to say, I was the president of Russia, I was the president of China, I was the president of the United States of America. 
doesn't matter. There's no partiality with God. It's simply your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and looking upon his works and upon his status as the one who takes away the sins of the world. And uh, before I continue on, anyone have any comments or questions? All right. Well, I got done about five minutes early. Got through it a little quicker um, than I was expecting. So uh, we'll pick it up next week in verses 12, and uh, we'll continue on from there. Thank you very much.